Hello, and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And it's so wonderful and rare to, to have access to Dr. DNA that I wanted to record quite a bit with him today. And um, this will probably go up a little bit later than the earlier uh, recordings that we've had. But um, while discussing in between shows the, um, the nature of genetics and superpowers, we started to discuss something which is very, um, very applicable to just about everybody. And it's about weight loss and how um, the genetics of superpowers are being probably spearheaded by the types of very popular areas of research like weight loss and desire medication and that types of things. But um, we wanted to really kind of drill into specifically how you could alter your own genetic buildup to become um, leaner, um, more powerful. And one of the things that is a a linchpin to a lot of these types of things is weight loss. That if um, you are predisposed to gaining a lot of weight, and there's a lot of reasons for that, and we're going to get into that, that um, you need to kind of address that before you can address other things. And so um, without further ado, I want to welcome back to the program, Dr. DNA. Hello, listeners. So um, when we took a break in between recordings, we talked about the fact that um, our species uh, is not really supposed to be thin. Right. I mean, um, if you believe in the evolutionary theory, um, and certainly if you look at people around you, you find in, in Western America, or Western culture, I should say, um, there was no case in, in evolutionary time where we had just massive abundance of food all the time. Man had to survive for many days, several days, sometimes even months without food. Mm -hmm. And a large part of our metabolism actually is meant for that and operates efficiently. And in fact, it's kind of useful to go without food for a while because you activate certain genes and you clear out certain deposits and some gunk that your body has, um, most notably misfolded proteins intracellularly. Um, yeah, so... There's pretty much nothing in our bodies genetically that says, oh, um, I am going to sacrifice um, starvation for being thin and good looking. It's always going to be like there may be a famine coming around the corner. I better put on fat. So, you know, don't be so hard on yourselves if you keep gaining weight in this particular culture where there's so much food around you and it's so tasty. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, and we, I mean, we do have a society of abundance. And while we've been complaining in the last um, few years, at least, about financial conditions, um, the truth of the matter is that if you were any place else on the planet, you'd be doing much worse. Well, not any place else. That, well, that's that's not true. But there there are certainly many other places on the planet where nobody has even the access to food that the poorest people in the United States have access to. Yeah, we really have it quite good on average. And certainly we can complain about the separation between the rich and the poor, but on average, you know. Which is have, drastic and, and legitimate. Right. And, and, and perceived inequalities, of course, are very bad as well. But. You know, we have clean air and clean water pretty much here in America. For it's quite now. Nice. Right, right. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, God. It can always get worse, as we talked about in the yeah. previous interview. Um, and that know, causes mutation, too. So yeah. I want to talk about the food in our society because, you know, you get hungry and you get food and you get what's convenient, what's there. And 
diets and weight loss and calories and high carb and low carb and Atkins and whatnot have been studied for a long time. And in fact, there was research done on this stuff in the 50s and 60s um, that was much better than anything you see today. And they had metabolic ward studies. And what that means is they actually had several hundred people in a lockdown ward where the food that was given to them was exactly known. There's no like kind of remembering what lunch you had yesterday or last year. And they would measure you to the gram of weight every hour all the time, except for when you were sleeping. They'd wake up at 3 a.m. and then 6 p.m. and or 6 a.m. and wake you. Was there so, an exercise control group involved in this? Was oh, this yeah. Specifically? So yeah. It's, I mean, it's a pretty big study. Absolutely beautiful, meticulous, undeniable studies were done. And they're largely forgotten now. And, and I see studies done now, and they're ridiculously underpowered, meaning not enough people are not well done enough. Right. But they're still done. It still goes on. I, uh, but all this research has been done before. And the bottom line is a uh, calorie really is a calorie. So, you know, high fat, low fat, uh, it's just to sell books and whatnot. You know, protein is the only real macronutrient you really need. Fat and sugar, they're, they're calorie sources and they're tasty. But, uh, yeah, I mean, please, listeners, don't worry about high fat or low fat. You really can distill it down to that. And I, mean, I could go into details and blow people away. But And that all depends on lifestyle, too. Like, certainly, if you live in a cold climate, if you are a spearfisher in Greenland and you have a 90% whale fat diet, um, these people don't die at the age of 40, but they also don't have other things in their diet that we have. So if we were to well, drastically alter. The, it turns out the whole Eskimo study, by the way, on they say, oh, yeah, you know, they're eating fat and they don't get heart disease. Oh, actually, yes, they do. They do get heart disease. They do. That's actually a myth. Okay. Yeah. Ugh. So anyway, um, but I just wanted to say, you know, these studies have been done. But there's a particular study or studies that have been done. Let me go into some history. So a lot of the weight loss and weight gain research was done in the agricultural field. So by farmers in America who wanted to find the optimal way to fatten their animals because they wanted to make the most profit. You know, they right. wanted to put the least amount of money in. They get the pigs biggest to make the most money. And so I'm talking about the metabolic ward studies for humans in the 50s and the 60s, but there were studies done with animals 20 years before by farmers, right? Mm -hmm. And they can completely control the animals. They don't have animal rights. Yeah, they're not jumping the fence to buy a candy bar and drink a soda and come back. Yeah, it wasn't an animal farm. All, all animals are equal or anything. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when you look at the human studies, you actually see that this stuff was done previously to animals and well done. Because, you know, a, a giant farm is, is going to be smart about their profit. And they found the optimal ratio of fats and carbohydrates and proteins to make the animals fat. And it turns out, as a funny, funny side, and it's probably related, on average, the composition of our foods we have available in America exactly match that ratio. They are perfectly fattening. It's about like a third, a third, and a third. I would perfectly match the amount of fats and carbs and protein to make animals fattest and thus humans fattest. Now, mind you, our food, processed food, is also engineered to have flavors because, you know, a company's got to make money and they want you to buy their product, right? And taste is addictive. Right. So, you know, of course, 
being a profitable company, they're going to make the best product they can to have you buy it. So don't be surprised if you love their goods. They're engineered perfectly. To make you love them and to make you physically addicted to that high of high concentration sugar and fat. And yeah, and, and let's not forget protein because what most people don't remember is that protein actually causes a large in insulin response and in carbohydrates per calorie. Most people don't know that. But so these true. are loaded proteins. No, they're just proteins. No. But, you know, people say, oh, insulin is caused by sugar. No, protein actually causes more of an insulin response than sugar, just as a side. Right. But um, so the food we have around us is engineered to be perfect. Now, now we're going to add in, I mean, perfectly delectable. Now we're going to add in uh, choice. So in animal studies, when they were looking at... What's the best stuff to put into their food to make their animals fattest? They've done every combination of flavors and macronutrients. And they'd grind up all this food and they'd make pellets out of it and they'd feed it to their animals. And the animals would only get so fat, like say 10% fat. Mm -hmm. And after they got that fat, they wouldn't eat anymore. They're just like, oh, no matter how tasty they made the food, they'd only get about 10% fat. And they sort of just inherently know their limit. Right, with that food, right. which was perfectly tasty and in pellet form. So it's sort of monotonous. You know, it's the same food every meal. It's the perfect food, but it's the same. No variety. Right, right, right. Now, here's a dirty little secret in diet areas, which you rarely, rarely actually hear mentioned by anyone who's promoting their particular diet book. We come to the cafeteria diet, which is the standard of getting things fat. And what they found out initially with rat studies is they would take the separate components that they would grind up and put into food, and they actually left them separate. And so they would have, for example, some pretzels laying out or something sweet, maybe some Oreo cookies or some cookies, I don't know, name brand, whatever. You know, so they'd have sweet out there, they'd have bitter out there, they'd have salty out there. So instead of eating a pellet, the rat had a choice. It could go, you know, I feel like pretzels now, and mm -hmm. it would eat some pretzels. And then I feel like sweet, and it would go eat something sweet, right? And it had a choice. And what was amazing was that these fats got 30% fatter, right? Not 10%. 10 was the limit. So when you have a choice, you know, on you what flavors eat. you want, you way overeat, and it's the best. It is the most fattening diet by far that has ever been created. Delicious, and you have choice. Wow. And where are we now? You have we have a lot of delicious food and we have a lot of choice. And so what do you think is the biggest hindrance to, um, I, I'm going to take that back, I'm going to rephrase that. What do you think is the best way to resolve that to not gain weight and not overeat? <laughs> I mean, it's different for everybody, well, I imagine. Well, to but, resolve that, I mean, you know, I have to... Um, I guess if you I don't have, to, have alcohol in the house, you don't drink. I have to put a shout out to the big companies that every now and then they try to do something good. Like we're going to put a salad on our menu. We're yeah. going to have a low calorie item. Yeah. Taco Bell went from worst right? to first. And, and you know, they try. They really do try. Mm -hmm. But they don't make much money on that. So they, of course, go back to the more delicious stuff. But, you know, kudos to them. They try. You know, um, yeah. What was your question? You know, how do people battle this? I mean, it's it's oh. sort of like a little, to a degree, it's beyond our control because we're now in generation, you know, well, whatever of you, having grown up on processed, delicious, well, fattening foods. Well, how you battle it, I mean, you just go and live in the woods and try to eat, 
you know, pine <laughs> needles and, you know, you're going to lose weight real quick. Yeah. <laughs> right. But logistically, is there a logistic way? I mean, like if you're living in L.A., yeah. I mean, how do you not get fat? Yeah. Well, you could be absolutely poor and have zero money. If you couldn't afford food at all, you would lose weight. Yeah. Um, and you can actually... Um, Although there's, wait, there's wait, a wait, high degree wait, of obesity wait, among no, the Wait, no, hold on. There's, there's, a, there's a myth I want to stop. There's this myth that you have to have three meals a day or you're going to waste away and you're going to lose protein. More meals is better, right? Cause it, and it, that's a, a beautiful it myth. Spikes your metabolism? No, no, no. Like five meals? No, no. No, it has nothing no? to do with metabolism. Oh, God, so many myths. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, one of the big myths... I don't know when it started, but it's a beautiful myth. It's sort of like the trickle-down theory. What great marketing, right? Yeah. And um, Let me keep everything, and sooner or later you'll get some of this because I won't be able to hold it all in my arms. Okay. That's so, trickle-down economics right there. So one of the myths is that um, you need to have your three meals a day or you're in a protein waste, you're going to lose muscles or whatnot. And who benefits from that? You know, the food industry, of course. And you really don't need three meals a day. And you're really not going to lose protein. Your 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 body adapts. It's a beautiful adaptation machine, and it puts it it adapts to what you put it to. And if it needs muscle, let's say if it needs to hunt and run around, it will prioritize its calories to maintaining and keeping muscle. If it doesn't need muscle, it's going to get rid of it, and very very quickly, within a day or two, their adaptation is bamming. Mm-hmm. It's so fast. I mean, if you ever look how quickly the military takes recruits and whips them into shape, or if you ever look at how quickly people decompensate and go from fit to nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's it's an absolute myth. Now, mind you, if you're not taking in any protein, for example, you are going to lose a little protein. Now, if you work out a little while you're taking in no protein, your body will really prioritize maintaining muscle. And you'll lose very, very minuscule amounts, and it's nothing to really worry about. And in fact, you can go for over a year with just a multivitamin and drinking water and losing a lot of fat. You know, let's say if you start off at 400 pounds, Mm -hmm. you could just do that if you wanted to. You could just do water and a vitamin pill and nothing else. No calories? No calories. And you will just burn fat. How will you wake up in the morning? You have no energy. You will. You'll adapt. Interesting. <laughs> not yeah. not a recommended diet. Well, you know the funny thing about this, you can do it for as much fat as you have on your body. So your body will adapt. It'll say like, "Oh, I'm in a time of famine. I need to burn off the fat I have." So I I forget the ratio. Um, you know, like if you had 20 pounds of fat, how many days you can go? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, please, you know, don't judge me wrongly if I get this wrong, but it's probably not something on the order, like if you had 20 pounds of fat, you could go a month, maybe three months or something, right? Depends on the ratio of, of fat, right? The percentage no, of body fat? just the amount of fat Just you the have. amount. Right. Now, um, and then you'll notice you'll get thinner and then you'll get bonier and things like that, but you can stop. But when do you get past that, that period of exhaustion? Because certainly people get exhausted and cranky when they don't eat. Well, let me tell you what I've experienced personally, because I, I can't pull up the literature right now in my If head. you've ever been on any, around anybody who's been on a cleanse, they become unpleasant in about oh. hour number two. <laughs> I, I had surgery some time ago, and uh, it was in my throat. I didn't feel like eating. Mm-hmm. And the doctors were trying to force feed me to eat, because they also believed in three meals a day. And I was like, no, I'm not going to eat. Mm-hmm. And about three days into it, I felt great. I felt normal. 
I was not eating. Just Did that involve water. any kind of ketosis or something like that in those three days? Or Oh, yeah. I mean, your body adapts to that and it starts burning fat is what it does. Right. Yeah. But um, will it burn muscle <clears throat> before it burns fat? A little, but not much. Okay. Yeah, don't worry about that. And you can largely prevent muscle loss by doing a little bit of exercise to your muscles. Just basically telling your muscles that you're still needed and still wanted. So if you wanted to keep your quadriceps, your legs, you could do a little just squats up and down right there where you're standing. Mm -hmm. Do a little bit of walking. If you want to keep your biceps, you could do a few bicep curls. And that'll send a signal to that muscle like you're still wanted and still needed, so don't go away. Right. And your body will prioritize. It'll go like, oh, I still need muscles because I'm still physically active. Right. And it will keep those muscles. And so then I guess another major problem that people have when they attempt to lose weight is that you can do that and you can crash and burn, literally, you know, not not taking in a lot of calories and not eating much. And then you lose a lot of weight. But then how do you level out when you start eating again? Because your body then, after being starved for, for food for a long time, is going to save it all, right? Because that's what no. human bodies do. No, it'll adapt very quickly to what you need. If it brings in calories... It, it knows what you're doing with your body that day. Are mm -hmm. you just sitting around or are you physically active? Mm -hmm. It'll adjust. Interesting. It's very smart. And I have to tell you, your body is way smarter than by far pretty much any science paper or certainly any diet book I've ever read. And the best thing you can do is really just kind of listen to yourself mm -hmm. if you can. You know, how does it feel? And that's also very true with types of food. Okay, you're, you just touched on something that I think we, we need to go into a little bit, and it's going to get a little esoteric, and I apologize, but there may be some truth to this, that part of listening to your body is, you know, people who do yoga, who do centering and that mm -hmm, type of thing, mm -hmm. they kind of, they go inward a little bit, and they kind of listen to their bodies. And what you're describing in a diet that doesn't take in much food seems to really, really match, you know, the kind of guru diet that you might find in northern India, in um, mountainous regions in China, where there's not access to a lot of high caloric food. And so there is a certain amount of physical um, activity, um, not a lot of um, caloric intake, and a lot of meditation. Mm -hmm. And they're not obese people, and they're not sickly thin. Mm -hmm. They seem to be fairly lean. Mm-hmm. And is the only thing that keeps them that lean the fact that they're not bombarded by advertisements, smells, and access to other people who are eating all kinds of other food? Certainly that's huge, right? I mean, so many people can eat for um, social reasons. Hey, let's have lunch together. Let's you hear it every single day. I'm guilty right? of this. But, yeah. are, but are you really hungry? I mean, and certainly many people in America... Um, have never known what hunger is. They've always been fed every day of their lives. Right, not so true they, hunger. They don't really know it. And I, and I think mentally, sociologically, for the, the health of a society, I think everyone should actually know what hunger is so at least they have more empathy for people who don't have right. food. Um, but yeah, you need to distinguish between um, eating for entertainment because, ooh, it's flavorful, and eating between your... You need calories or you need protein. Like myself, <clears throat> I've actually got to the point of I have of an empty cookie wrapper right in front of me right now as where, we record this. Where, yeah. Where I have a feeling where if I know if I need protein. You ever have that feeling where you're like, oh, I'm kind of hungry, and you eat something sweet and it doesn't satisfy? I know when I want meat. Right? I just know. Yeah. So that's that. Listen. I wish I ate more fish. Well, do you like more fish? I do not like fish. Well, then there you go. Yeah. 
So, uh, and there's variation. You know, it's a more perfect food, I guess. Don't is there look, such don't a thing? let the theories you've read and you've heard about don't let that interfere in the way my body the way works. you actually yeah. feel about a food. Okay, is what I'm saying. That's good. Because there's variation between where you evolve from. Right. Some people evolved eating oats. Some people evolved eating meats. Some Potato people evolved right eating potatoes. Yep. Right. And um, there actually is genetic variation. And we can go into the superpowers of that. Yeah. You know, oh, you're a superpowered potato eater. That's yeah. your power. <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> that's, I think that's on my birth certificate. <clears throat> but um, you and your body know much more than probably any doctor what tastes good for you, right? Right. And you should really listen to that. The problem is, is you got to be able to separate what's the external things telling you what you should eat. Like, oh, you should have fish oil or you should have broccoli versus how you really feel about it. And let's tell everybody what they used to do with fish oil. Ah, yes, fish oil. They used to lacquer paintings with it. Do you really want to drink that stuff? Right. I mean, these um, polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is like fish oil, um... They form plastics. They are exposed to air, mm-hmm. and they will cross-link. They will interact with each other and form a hard plastic. And in fact, um, before the petroleum industry really came online in the 50s, um, lacquer was made from fish oil. All these plastics were made from fish oil. Plastics were around before petroleum industry really got big in that area. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, you can find plastics from 1920s, like old Coca-Cola soda fountain machines that are still very strong and durable. And if you have a bottle of fish oil in any way, you can smell it going bad. And you should trust your nose on that. Does that smell good to you? Right. Because for me, you know, you know when things turn rancid, it doesn't smell good. And, and even though you say, oh, I should be eating fish oil, maybe you shouldn't. I say right. trust your nose. Interesting. Now, to take care of um, any type of legalese claim that we might, necess- might necessarily need to put this out there. This is not medical advice. This is not medical <laughs> advice. Um, that said, you know, and it's funny because anytime you hear any type of claim, and, and this is definitely a legalese issue, people say, but contact your doctor. Now, that is really a shift of blame because what they're saying is mm. we do recommend this and we're selling you a product that recommends this, but... If you go to a doctor and he says that you're healthy enough to do this, then you're okay to do it. But there there are legitimately people that may have a health condition that would make that type of diet not good for them, correct? Right. And if they have that health condition, hopefully um, they would associate. For example, let's say they have some health condition where if they eat something, uh, their finger falls off. Right? Yeah. And then you'd eat something, your finger would fall off, and you'd go like, oh, I better not do that again. Right. So learn. Touching the burn stove. We don't tend to do that with food because I think, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let people a little bit off the hook here, and I think you already have in saying that part, the biggest part of this issue is advertisement and choice. And that because we are com- we're so marketed to constantly, and we're around other people who are marketed to, who don't want to feel bad about their choices, mm-hmm. they want to grab on you and say, "Please make this bad choice with me." Mm-hmm. You know, like say, "Let's go out, let's let's meet up for dinner." You know, and it's like you have this extravagant thing, you eat too much, you feel terrible that night, but you yeah. remember the great time you had with your friends. Yeah, you could have just skipped the meal and had a great time with your friends, I guess. But the um, not all friends, but the um. The major thing, what I say in, in taking people off the hook here, is well, it's not I don't know really if you can take them off the hook because they're the ones that are putting the food in their mouth. Yeah, they're making they're making the choice. So. They're definitely making the choice to do that. But I also think that um, 
But man, you're a heroin addict surrounded by heroin, or you're an alcoholic in an alcohol shop. Like I say, shop, if, if there's no right? booze at home, you don't drink the booze. Right. You know, you, it's you. That's one way to not do that. What's the anybody who comes out of AA? What do they say? They say you can't go back to a house where somebody else is is drinking because right. you, you're just not going to have sobriety if that's what you want. And I think that the number one guideline against overeating is not keeping really crappy food in your house. But that's actually hard to do because people don't understand what's really bad for you and what isn't and what ratios are okay and what ratios aren't. You know, we talked about sugar. You know, that there's been two separate attempts in the last 30 or 40 years to target two completely different types of food groups in order to sell more products Mm -hmm. that have a higher um, profitability margin. Mm -hmm. One was... Um, that high fat foods targeted sugary foods and said, oh, so you started to see things like reduced sugar or sugar free. Now, these products are not better for you than something that has sugar in them. In many cases, they're worse. Mm-hmm. And then after that was the fat law, you know, the anti fat lobby, which was like low in fat, and then those would be high in sugar or high in salt. Can we just get some truth? Yeah. Give me the truth. But right? basically what you what you would advocate, I would imagine, is against processed foods of any type. Well, that's the thing. And that's actually a really good um, differentiator because they're processed to be absolutely delicious. And, and we're um, talking about chemical processing. We're not talking about necessarily alcoholic fermentation. We're not talking it be about whatever. pasteurization. It could be whatever process. Yeah. But, you know... Um, Food can lie to you when it's processed. They can put in absolute flavors and so on, and you like it more. But you can get around it by listening to yourself. Uh, it's, again, the analogy. You're in an alcohol. You're in a bar surrounded by tasty drinks. Um, mm-hmm. Remove yourself. Yeah, don't go to the bar. It's, it, it's, none of this is easy. Yeah. Because if we ever, in evolutionary time, sacrificed... Um, looking food, um, decided that it was much better to look good than it was to survive a famine, we would not have survived. Yeah, it would have disappeared. And our genes would have not been passed on. And so that's selected against. Um, We are in a rare, rare time where we have a glut of energy from petroleum. So we have a glut of food. Mm -hmm. It's not going to last. Right. Um, It's a rare spike. And we've also gone through evolutionary changes as a result of us adding certain things to our diet, certainly protein, that it wasn't until we really started eating red meat that we started to develop higher intelligence. Well, um, yeah. I mean, the invention of fire is absolutely fantastic because, is there a patent on that? (laughs) Microsoft should get that. Anyway, (laughs) sorry. Sorry, Microsoft. But by cooking food, it... Um, and we got to go into calories too, calorie mm-hmm. labeling on boxes. By cooking food, it makes those calories in that food and that nutrition in that food more easily accessible by your body. So your body doesn't have to put as much work into getting the calories out of it. So basically by heating up food, you're adding energy to your body. Next, it's a way of getting extra calories. Not all foods, but a lot of foods. Some foods I think are supposedly more better for you, Ra. No, I'm I'm correct in this statement. It's um, all foods when you cook them are more calorie accessible. 
Hmm. But better for you raw is a different thing. Like, for example, you know, broccoli, if you cook it, it can kill certain enzymes. Right. Which can cause uh, conversions of one nutrient to another. Right. Um, and then that's gone. So in some things, eating something raw is useful. Um, Carrots, broccoli. Sul- uh, broccoli, sulforaphanes, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but energetically wise, um, cooking is, is a... Um, a tremendous invention that allowed us to get a lot more calories out of the food we eat. It took a lot less work for us. And thus, you know, we could um, make more children and have specialized classes. Instead of everyone being a hunter-gatherer, we could have thinker classes or shaman classes Mm or, yeah. And then there's coffee, which probably sparked the Renaissance. (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing about coffee and any sort of stimulant There was a study I came across some years ago, and they took um, amphetamine addicts uh, and cocaine addicts and crack addicts, and they wanted to see if they could figure out if they could figure out what drug they were taking in a blind sort of study. Mm -hmm. So they gave them uh, intravenous uh, injection of either caffeine or amphetamine or cocaine, and then gave them a questionnaire: What drug did we just give you? Right. Oh, if the user could know. Yeah, if the user right. could know. And this is a user who has used all these drugs, right. you know, in daily life. So he should know. And what they found is that the user didn't know. So on a physiological level, I mean, just for all of you coffee users out there, it's it feels internally the same way as a cocaine or crack. And chocolate feels like being in love. You know what I don't know is like, why did this theobromine hurt dogs? You know, you hear about that chocolate for dogs. I was, mm-hmm. I was looking into that, and there wasn't anything on a wiki page that was good mm-hmm. or anywhere else. We just know that, you know, they have seizures and die, but yeah. we don't know exactly what goes on. Maybe some, one of your listeners knows and can chime in. <laughs> at what cost would the research come at this day and age? You know, how many dogs would die? That's the other thing. Yeah, I like dogs. I like dogs, too. Not for supper. I actually used to do a lot of animal research, <clears throat> and I just really... um. And I have to say, rats and mice are actually very nice animals in general. I just can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think that kind of gets us to the bottom of of diet. Now, Does is it? there any um is there anything else that you wanted to add? You know, like well, on diet is like well, as we got back to the cafeteria diet and monotonous diet, like any diet will work that restricts you. Like some years ago, there was the oatmeal cookie diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would work if all you got to eat was oatmeal cookie. That would be really boring after a while and you'd stop eating that. Now, is there, is, does everybody have a spot in their brain that is, that just wants variety? Because the monotony of these diets is usually their downfall. I think that is probably the standard program that every little baby starts off with. Mm -hmm. Curiosity and seeking, right? Mm -hmm. Variety. And somewhere along the way, some people think that the world is very uh, dangerous and stop um, actively being curious and searching and become more defensive. Mm -hmm. And it depends how successful you are in the environment you're in and things like that. Curiosity, seeking whether it's been good for you or bad. And that's certainly applicable beyond diet. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, I think the default is, you know, every little baby starts off kind of curious. And unfortunately, if the world is kind of harsh, they lose it. Mm-hmm. Which could be good for diet. Right. Interesting. 
But you do see some people that like what they like, and that's all they do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm only going to have toast and tea for breakfast. That's mm-hmm. it, ever. Yeah. I, I like variety. Now, there's also, and, and I don't think anybody's going to argue against variety, but the there's something to be said for routine in that if you eat at the same time every day and you get to bed at the same time every day, not to get too Ayurvedic mm-hmm. here, but that there is a a certain success ratio to limiting yourself if you have a structured program that requires activation at certain points during the day. Well, well you certainly do adapt to it, but... You know, this is going to sound all sort of hippy-dippy, but please believe me, I'm really couched in sort of Western scientific thought really deeply, and I've read the papers, and I know the papers, and and there's a fundamental reason why, reason why um, I'm going to say these things, which seem so simple and so obvious. And, you know, when you're tired, you should sleep. When you're hungry, you should eat. And... um yeah, but if you're working on an assembly line, I guess you all got to be there at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it depends, right? Uh, figure that out. I know that in medieval Europe, there's evidence that they had uh, two sleep periods during a day. They'd go to bed in the late afternoon and wake up just before midnight or so naturally and be active for a few hours and then go back to sleep until sunrise. And what's interesting about that is that it kind of follows the natural thyroid T4 levels that circulate in the bloodstream. The, uh, your thyroid levels are at their maximum around midnight. They're really quite high. And if you measure it by TSH level, thyroid-stimulating hormone, I think it's like, uh, like around 8, a value of 8 around midnight, to put it in perspective. And then it slowly drops down after midnight, and it reaches the lowest point at around 4 p.m., and I don't know if you've noticed, but I often feel a little sleepy around late afternoon, 4 p.m. or 5 p.m. Or as they sleepy. call it in England, tea time. Oh. Time for a little more caffeine, 4 o'clock. There you go, right? Yep. So your body naturally does that. A little that. cookie and a little tea. Keep you productive. Yep. So there's that. And so if you were to follow your natural thyroid levels, which has a tremendous impact on your energy levels... Um, that's what you would naturally sleep, what they were doing in medieval Europe. And you listeners might want to try it. I've actually tried it and found it very refreshing. Um, yeah. But the second point about that comes back to the medical profession. So thyroid failure um, is very trendy in medicine. It has been trendy for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And there are entirely too many people that are being overdiagnosed with thyroid cancer and having the surgery when really it's a little nodule and it resolves itself. And when I say entirely over-diagnosed with that, I mean like 90% of the people don't need it. Wow. They're getting their thyroid removed and getting T4 supplements. So fashion and trends in medicine. Um, But the reason this happens is for thyroid function analysis, they take your blood and they measure the TSH levels in the blood. And when you take the blood during the day um, determines where your level is going to be. Makes sense. And so it can go down to a level of 0.5 around 4 p.m. And around 6 p.m. it could be at around 4. So 
And I think the safe range is something between one and two, let's say. So if you take it early in the morning on the blood draw, it's too high. And yeah, if you take it in the this afternoon, be standardized? I it's mean... too low. But it is not standardized. The blood draws are done willy-nilly throughout the day. Yeah, whatever you get in the office. Yep. But there is a large natural variation in TSH level. So the doctor's analysis of your thyroid function is way off, and they should take into account when it's being drawn. Yeah. Um, or they should note on the last draw that if you're going to compare, compare to at least absolutely. the last draw, if you're not going to compare to the standardized one at the same time. Right. So, and, and this, this is definitely still relevant to that conversation about superpowers because these are the factors that definitely contribute to you maintaining a healthy standard weight. And, um, mm-hmm. and so sleep and and how much water should we be drinking you know like are you thirsty if you're thirsty drink <laughs> but i think a lot of people we are so not used to asking those types of questions some people may be thirsty all day all right and they think you know i i can get to that next point where i'm going to drink and not drinking enough water will age you quicker and drinking too much will harm you as well yeah and that causes your um it can deplete your salts because yeah. you pee out your salts. So too much or too little, right? But yeah. your taste will generally lead you right as long as what you're eating is is not lying to you. And as long as you have access to clean water. Now, the second thing I'm not lying to you is this. Um, well, speaking of clean water, we should talk about that and cholera and vitamin B12. Um, God, where was I? B12 injections are paradise, by the way. Yeah, good. <laughs> well, Shit, where was I going? Your body not lying to you. Yes. Well, food labeling. God bless Ralph Nader for giving us food labeling. Mm-hmm. I have to say. Such a good guy. Yeah, look at a box now, of cookies from the 1940s and look at a box of cookies from last week and you're going to see something on the, on the box from last week that you didn't see on the box of cookies from the 40s. Mm-hmm. And that is any type of nutritional information. And often there weren't even ingredients like listed on, on the boxes, right? Yeah, yeah. So you read these labels and they have so many calories, right? People who are dieting and they go like, oh, I need so many calories. I'm going to choose the food. I'm going to read the labels and calculate it all out and that's what I'm going to eat. Mm-hmm. And they can be confused because they'll be like, well, you know, it's strange. I, I have the right number of calories, but I'm still getting fatter. Or I have the right number of calories, but I'm, I'm hungry. Mm-hmm. There's something wrong. And what's wrong is that um, how your body burns the food is different than how the calories are determined in the central processing plant. Because the way they determine the calories for these labeling is they'll take that food, they'll grind it up until it's a homogenous mass, and they'll put a little bit into this uh, insulated vessel and they burn it. It's called a bomb calorimeter. Or you can use other calorimeters or other high-ends, different processes. But basically, they just burn it with oxygen, and they get the energy out, and they know the calories. Um, But your body burns it a little differently. And so the calorie you read on a label can actually be different than the calories your body feels and gets to. And it can be as different as like 40% either way. Right. Right? Now, there's there's a comparison I'm going to draw between lab conditions and real-world conditions, too, when it comes to flammability. And there was a lot of lawsuits built around, you know, children's pajamas were flammable and and kids were getting hurt. And so the tests that the chemical companies would run 
worked around how fast a a certain piece of fabric would go from being just ignited to completely burning. Mm-hmm. Now that does not take into consideration that that's not the only thing in a room that people live in. And so while it may take a certain amount of time for a curtain to catch fire, if that curtain is on fire, it's also lighting other things in the room on fire probably, which are going to exacerbate the time that that takes to burn. But they don't study that. They study just that one piece of fabric to determine if it takes at least 10 seconds to burn, then it's okay, or whatever their criteria is. Mm-hmm. California being um, having a, a slightly more stringent rule than the rest of the country. But what that speaks to is kind of what everybody knows about buying a car, that when they give you your miles per gallon, it's under a very controlled set of circumstances that does not kind of become realized in the real world. So you almost never get the miles per gallon that they're being sold to you. And people just kind of take that for granted. Do you think that that people should be a little bit more outraged about these things? Or, or no. do you think they don't know? Or no, I, I think is it people, easily customizable? People should really adjust for their lives. Mm. Like you're saying, uh, you know, your mileage may vary on the cars. And you may theoretically, you know, calculate based upon your weight and your fat percentage that you're burning this many calories or not. Mm-hmm. That can be way off. The only way to really know how much your natural metabolism is is to eat food for like a week, a very controlled set of food, and measure your weight, mm-hmm. right? And know this. Um, there's a tremendous variation. There was a paper in Science um, in the late 90s, and they were looking science at- Science Magazine. Yeah, Science Magazine. Yeah. It's a journal. It's well-respected. It's the number one journal for science in America. Nature is Europe, is Europe but still mm-hmm. number one as well there. And- uh, <clears throat> They were looking at uh, what in your body is burning calories. Is it your muscles that are burning calories? Is it your organs and things like that? And the bottom line is what they found is that some people naturally have a little more muscle tension internally in their bodies, like their abs are a little tighter or their biceps are a little tighter, and they're burning a little more energy. Mm -hmm. They may look the same, may have the same weight, same fat percentages, but their muscles are firing a little more. And in fact... Those people were burning 40% more calories than the average person. They have a higher right? body temperature? They have a higher metabolism because of that. A body mm-hmm. temperature, yeah, it would be a bit higher. Mm-hmm. Yeah, based upon the cooling of your lungs and perspiration. But um, so you could get a person who looks the same, the same weight, but they can be burning 40% more calories, right? So that kind of explains how some people just naturally seem thin all the time and can eat all the time. Mm-hmm. So that can vary a lot. Um. So when you take into account that, the variation between people, then you take into account the variation between how calories are actually burned in your body and digested in your body versus what's on the labels, it's it's near impossible to figure things out by just tabulating and calculating what's on the labels and figure you're going to lose weight or gain weight. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Sorry, listeners. It's you got to figure it out for your own body. And there we have it. So from the from the the voice of Dr. DNA to your own potentially superhero ears, uh, this has been pod sequentialism. We've been addressing um, how diet functions, the superhero diet, um, how one might customize that for themselves for optimum um, ability. And that feeds into our kind of overall discussions that we've been having with Dr. DNA over the course of the last couple of years about how we can, give ourselves superpowers, how we can isolate certain things, uh, certain activities, certain abilities, 
and grow upon those for um, for more strength, more speed, or just a higher quality of life. So until next time, this has been Pod Sequentialism. I have been your host, Matt Kennedy. And um, as always, we're dropping a new episode um, once a week, generally on Sunday nights, sometimes Monday mornings. But um, we're, we're keeping it pretty consistent. You can follow us at at podsec p-o-d-s-e-q um you can follow us on facebook at pod sequentialism um you should follow the pop sequentialism.com website which is just been relaunched and will be getting a bit of a facelift but um has an index of incredible important modern comic book art and it will soon encompass also animation art uh, production art and things related to the illustration field and we encourage you to visit gallery30south.com for a slightly more highbrow fair that's at gallery30south it's a gallery in Pasadena you can also follow La Luz de Jesus Gallery for um, the birthplace of lowbrow and pop surrealism and uh, visit the Wacko and Soap Plant Superstore Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery and what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.